Genesis chapter 3, working our way through this first book of the Bible. And in this passage that we'll study this evening, we will see the birth of blame shifting. The man blames the wife, the wife blames the serpent, and uh, so blame shifting begins. And when it comes to blame shifting, I can't think of a field of study that is more prone to blame shifting than the field of psychology. If a person is a homosexual, the field of psychology will tell that person, well, you can't help it that you're a homosexual, so just live the way that you were made. Be who you are. In other words, the more flowery way to say that is follow your heart. It will never steer you wrong. So if it's steering you into what some people might call sin, it's okay. And even though they say that, they don't really believe that. They believe it when it comes to acceptable societal sins, like homosexuality or immorality. You know, if, if, if your heart leads you in that way, how can you stop yourself from getting what you're, you're made to do, right? So, so if it's a, an acceptable societal sin, they say, then, then follow your heart. But if it's an unacceptable societal sin, like drunkenness or murder, or rape, what does the field of psychology say there? Follow your heart. It'll never steer you wrong. See, they don't even believe it themselves. Instead, they give you some pills or label it as some medical condition. What they're doing here is what these first two humans did. They're shifting the blame. And that's very easy to do because nobody wants to take responsibility for what God calls sin. It's much easier for them to connect a person's chronic drinking to an alcoholic father who's no longer around than it is to connect the chronic drinking to habitual sin or the sin of a, a wicked heart. So, here, here is something that we need to keep in mind when it comes to the field of psychology. They always begin with a wrong premise. They begin with the premise that humans are good by nature. That humans are good by nature. Did you ever notice that? And that was true at one time. Adam and Eve were good by nature. But that changed when they fell, when they sinned against God. And ever since then, every member of the human race is a depraved sinner, save one. Hearts are desperately wicked, and who can know them? Jeremiah 17, 9. So, because psychologists think that, think that humans are good by nature, all of their diagnoses point to a person's internal goodness. So if you're doing something that's against the law or it's against the nature of our society, then it's not your fault. It's a, it's a result of your circumstances. If, if evil is rearing its head, then it's not your fault. You're a victim of your upbringing. Now, please don't hear me say that there are no real medical diseases or no real psychological conditions, but in general, okay, I'm speaking in generalities here, psychology is a corrupt field of study 
that, that is full of blame shifting. Because it begins with a wrong premise that humans have a good heart. But we know from the Scripture that that is not true. The Scriptures teach us not to blame our circumstances, not to blame our spouse, as we'll see tonight. Not to blame our job, not to blame our bank account or or, or the lack of money thereof, not to blame our upbringing or our friends or even our medical condition. Because James 1.14 says that no one is coerced to sin. No one is forced to sin because of some sort of circumstances in their life. Rather, every person is sins when they are drawn away and enticed by what? Their own lusts. No one's twisting your arm to sin. No one's forcing you to, to defy God. And so even when we are genuinely deceived, like I believe Eve was, we still have to take responsibility for our sin. Because God is holy and our sin causes us to have a gulf fixed between us and God. Alright, so the birth of blame shifting. Let's read about this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Our sin before God causes at least two main things with regard to our relationship with God. The first is fear and shame. That's in verses 8 through 11. Fear and shame. And then the second is denial and blame. Verses 12 and 13. So let's begin by looking at verses 8 through 11. The first effect of sin that we see in this passage is fear and shame. Now, The former way of life is seen in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It seems as if this was a regular pattern for God to come and walk among them in the cool of the day. This phrase, the cool of the day, is used only in two other passages in the Old Testament. Both of them come from the Song of Solomon. Turn there with me. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Okay, if you find Psalms, you're close. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7, and you'll see this phrase used, the cool of the day. Chapter 2, verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gels or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Um, That is not the verse I am looking for. Apologize for that. 
let's go back to Genesis because I'm, I don't want to waste time trying to find where it is. But the, the verse actually talks about the cool of the day and then it says, at the time when the shadows flee like an early evening. What is it? 2.17. All right. 2.17, if you're still there, I'll read it for you quickly. Thank you, Jonathan. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 17. Until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bether. Until the cool of the day... Okay, so when is this cool of the day? It seems as if it's when the shadows flee away. Well, that sounds to me like it's early evening. So turn back to Genesis now. The sound of the Lord God comes to walk among them in the cool of the day. Probably early evening. This was probably a regular pattern of God that He would come and walk with Adam and Eve. A special experiential relationship that they had where they could have a visible and enjoy the visible and audible presence of God. Notice in verse 8 and 10 it talks about the sound of the Lord God. It was like the sound of Him walking. Well, how, do, how does God walk? Right? Have you ever thought about that? Does God the Father have legs? No, God is not a physical being, right? He is spirit. The Scripture often speaks of Him as if He were a physical being. Did you ever notice that? In other words, the Bible uses descriptions of God in a way that we can understand Him. Otherwise, it's difficult to comprehend a spiritual being or particularly the spiritual God. And so what the Scriptures do is it speaks of Him as if He has physical characteristics when He doesn't. Okay, so let me give you some examples. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, God smelled the, smooth, the soothing aroma from Noah's sacrifice. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 23, in the New International Version, it says, Is the Lord's arm too short? So there we see, first we see that he smells, he's got an arm. Psalm 111.7 that we read this morning during our scripture reading, the work of his hands. Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the what of God? The mouth of God, right? And then the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good, Proverbs 15.3. Now, these verses are not suggesting that God has body parts as if He were physical. But rather, these verses are suggesting that God can do things that body parts can do because He is a person. He can see. He can speak. He can touch. He can smell. So what exactly is going on here in Genesis chapter 3 when it says that God is walking in the garden? If He is spirit, how is it that He's walking in? in the garden. Well, Moses doesn't make it clear here what is going on, but perhaps it's the same way that God walked before them, before the the children of Israel, as they're going through the wilderness. How did he do that? Was it a person walking on two legs? No. It was a cloud. It was what's called the Shekinah glory, the pillar cloud by day, and the pillar of fire by night. So apparently, what's happening here is we have a a visible presence of God in the Garden of Eden 
where they could actually see him, they could hear him. Maybe it was the rustling of the trees, I'm not sure. But, but whatever it was, it was a special relationship with God where He would spend time with them, where He would have conversation with them unimpeded. And so this relationship between God and humans fits into the overall purpose of Scripture, which is that God is glorifying Himself by entering into a loving relationship with people who are made in His image so that He can dwell among them. This is how it all began. God wanted to live among humans. Why? Is there something special about humans? No, because He wanted to magnify His own glory. He wanted to show how great He was to to these humans. To us, even. This is how it all began. This loving relationship of God was capped off by a walk in the garden at the end of each day. God and man were in perfect harmony and there was no no opposition in the created order until sin entered into the world. And so this first effect of sin is that now instead of Adam and Eve walking in the garden and spending time with God, now they hide from God. This regular pattern apparently that was going on is now replaced by hiding. Notice what they looked like or or what they were like before they sinned. Chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, do you want to know what shame looks like? Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. This is after they ate the fruit. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Okay, before, chapter 2, verse 25, they were naked and not ashamed. There was nothing to hide. There was nothing for them to hide before God, and there was nothing for them to hide before each other. This indicated that there was genuine innocence. There was no guilt, no shame, but here it all changes after sin comes in. There's two ways that they hide themselves. Number one, in verse 7, they put on clothing, but that's not enough, is it? Because in verse 8, even though they have the clothing on, where do they go? They hide among the trees. The trees through which they would walk with God are now the place of their refuge from God. And... um, so, so they are shameful. They're, they're ashamed. Their fear, I said that uh, the, the first effect of sin is fear and shame. Their fear is seen further in verses 9 through 11. First of all, notice who God is speaking to in verse 9. Notice to whom God is speaking. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And this word you here is a pronoun and it's singular. So he's not saying, where are you guys at? Where are you to, Adam and Eve? He's saying to Adam specifically, where are you? God is holding Adam primarily responsible for the sin that was committed. Which makes sense, because Adam was the one who received the command directly from God. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. And notice why the man said he is afraid. Remember, I said the first effect is fear and shame. We saw the shame. But the fear comes 
And he tells us why in verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid, notice why, because I was naked. So I hid myself. Now this is important because he doesn't say, I was afraid because of my sin. Because now I have something that that puts a, a, a conflict or a barrier between me and you. My sin is, is ever before me and I want to repent of it. Instead, he says, no. The reason that I'm ashamed is because I was naked, so I hid myself. So God wants to show him that the reason that there is this shame and this fear is because of his sin. Look how God does it in verse 11. He gets to the heart of the question. Or the heart of the problem, I should say. Verse 11, And he, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Before I, um, we talk about um, how God shows him his sin, let me just bring up one question. Why does God ask Adam questions? Did you ever think about that? He asks three questions to Adam. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? And have you sinned? Why does God ask questions? I mean, what is going on here? When he says, where are you, is that kind of like a hide-and-seek? Where are you, Adam? Are you behind that tree? Is that what's going on here? I mean, some believe that this verse, that verses like this, where God asks questions, okay, we, we looked at some this morning in Job, where God asks questions is a result of God not knowing all things. That God is learning. That He, he, he can't even know the future because He don't even, doesn't even know what's going on right now. That He is a learning God. That He is a, a, a responding God. As He finds out information, here He's up, here up in response. And there's a philosophy out there that tries to make sense of the Bible in this way. It's called open theism that God really doesn't have complete knowledge of all things, that He has supernatural knowledge. It's much better than any human, but it's not infinite. It's not omniscient. See, God is a learning God. And if you continue to read throughout this book of Genesis, you're going to find another question that God asks. He asks it of Cain. Where is your brother Abel? Okay, again, maybe God doesn't know. Where are you? Where is this, this man that I created? But, but if these questions are interpreted to mean that God has limited knowledge, then you have to cut out several verses out of your Bible. You have to cut out major sections of your Bible. Like 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, that says this, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Psalm 147.4 says that God counts the stars and He knows them all by name. He didn't create them and say, now how many stars did I make? And there was this one galaxy called the Milky Way, but I can't remember where I put that. I need to find that because in that galaxy is a specific solar system and, and, and a planet in there of which I created some humans, but 
I need to get to that plan, but I'm not sure exactly where it is. What about when a bird dies? Do the angels of God have to tell him about it? Jesus says in Matthew 10:29 that he knows when the, even the most insignificant birds, insignificant of birds, fall to the earth. Job 26.6 says that, that Abaddon and death lay open before the eyes of God. That is, he knows everything about even death and, 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 the, and the, uh, the, the next life to come. Things of which we have very little knowledge, if any. Psalm 139 teaches us that God is everywhere and knows all things. It reads this way at the beginning of the chapter, O Lord... You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word of my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I hide from your love? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths of Sheol, you are there. If I go out to the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. Even there your hand will lead me. Even there your hand will guide me. See, there's nothing outside of God's knowledge. There's no part of this earth where we can hide from God. So why then is God asking these questions if He knows it all? What is He doing here? Well, isn't it true that some good questions help drive the hearers to the correct answer? What you should have said in your mind just now is yes. Okay, that was a question that I used to help drive you to the right answer. God is doing the same thing. He's trying to get Adam to voice what he is thinking. He wants Adam to, to express it himself. Jesus did this as well. Do you remember in Mark chapter 8, verses 13 through 21, when the disciples are out on the boat and they forget to bring bread? All they have is one loaf, one little flat piece of bread that wouldn't even be enough for one person. And they're getting frustrated over this. Jesus had just said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they think, oh, he's talking about the fact that we didn't bring bread. And Jesus says, do you remember when I fed the 5,000, how many baskets were left over? And they responded. They said 12. And do you remember when I fed the 4,000, how many baskets full were left over? And they remembered. And they said seven. And he said, how could you be so dull of understanding? Do you understand who I am? What was Jesus doing there? Did he not know the answers to those questions? Was he needing some help from the disciples? No. Not at all. He was, he was helping them to see that they were so foolish for their doubting. Think back. Okay? Questions often help a person see something in a light by which they otherwise would not have seen. Sometimes when we make statements, they kind of wash over us. Jesus could have said it this way. I fed the 5,000 and there were 12 baskets full. I fed the 4,000 and there were 7 baskets full left over. How could I not feed you as well? Okay, but instead, he uses questions. He tries to... It's like an interrogation. It's like 
Jesus is a skillful prosecuting attorney. God, I think, is doing the same thing here in Genesis chapter 3. Does a prosecuting attorney ask questions for the sake of his own knowledge? When he's up talking to the witness at the witness stand, is he trying to learn information at this point in the case? Not at all. Not if he's a good one. He should be leading the witness to, to voice what is in his mind about the case. He asks them in such a way to get the witness to defend himself. And so what we have here in Genesis chapter 3 is God asking questions in an, in an interrogation type way. He's not laying out charges. He wants Adam to voice. He's, he's teaching Adam. And so here's the questions that he asks. Verse 11. Who told you that you were naked and have you eaten from the tree? What God is doing here is obviously He recognizes that according to chapter 3, verse 22, that they are now like God in a sense, that they know good and evil. They have an understanding of good and evil in, in a way that they hadn't before. And the point of God's question is, who told you that you were naked? The answer to that question is, no one told me. No one told me. What God was trying to do was trying to make a connection here for Adam in his own mind between the shame that they were experiencing. That's the first question. Look at it again. Verse 11. Who told you you were naked? Okay, that's the question about the shame. That's the topic of that sentence. The, the shame. The shame that you're getting is a result of the second question. What's the topic of the second question that he asked in verse 11? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Here it is, Adam. The reason that you experience shame, the reason that you sense your own nakedness is because, there's a direct connection here, because you ate from the tree. And that's why I say one of the very first effects of sin is shame. And that shame leads us to be fearful before God. We recognize that we are not right before God when we sin. That we have defied the holy God. Now, that doesn't always mean we admit that. And that's what we'll see here in verses 12 and 13. Because the next effect of sin is denial and blame. Denial and blame. What began as a denial of God's judgment, verse 4, Satan says, you will not surely die. Okay? Denial of God's judgment. It led to a denial of sin altogether. And this is what Adam does. We see his passing of the blame in verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Okay, So, Adam's now trying to explain to God his thought process. Here's how it works, God. I ate. But the only reason I ate is because of her. She was there. She gave me the fruit. And the reason that she gave me the fruit, the reason that she was even there in the first place, was because you gave her to me. So, here is the progression. I sinned, yes. But it was a result of her and a result of you. He's passing the blame both to the woman and implicitly to God. 
Now, this is completely backwards from how Adam had first saw Eve. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. Notice his praise of her when God creates her. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is a praise song about his newly uh, created wife. But now it's no longer a gift from God. This woman was now a barrier between him and God because she led him to sin. She was a mistake. It's not completely completely my fault, God. It was Eve's. I mean, I never sinned before she was here, so if she hadn't been here, I would still be right with you. So, it was her fault and kind of yours too because you're the one who put her there. Now we look at this passage and we think, Adam, how could you be so foolish? Just take responsibility for your sin. You, you, you defied God. Just admit it. I mean, how could you blame your wife and God? How could you do that? But we do the same thing, don't we? When I married my spouse, it was a gift from God. But maybe God made a mistake. I wasn't like this before she came along or he came along, right? We blame somebody else and implicitly we're blaming God. You know, if only I had a better job. I wouldn't do these things that I'm doing right now. I wouldn't be filled with so much anger and resentment towards people. It's because I'm so busy at work, I, I, I have to take it out on someone. Or if I only I had better people to go to church with. It would be so much easier for me to worship You rightly, God. Or if only I had more well-behaved children. If You would have given me better children, God. I could serve You better. I promise I could. If I had a few more dollars, I had a bigger bank account, if I had a better upbringing, if I learned more as a child, if only I had better health, God. If only you didn't allow this health health problem to come into my life, I would be just like I was before with you. I would have a good relationship with you. And the only reason that I don't have them, God, is because you haven't given me what is best. And so for you, God, you have to take some responsibility for my sin. You see, making excuses for our sin is a sophisticated way to deny our sin. It's a sophisticated form of denial, is it not? And this is a huge problem. When we make excuses, when we try to justify ourselves, we implicitly accuse God. Self-justification is God accusing. You're trying to make your sin look right before God, then all you're doing is you're passing the blame, either to someone else or to God or to both. And by the way, with Adam, God doesn't buy his excuses. 
Notice to whom he charges the responsibility in verse 13. Then to Adam he said, I'm sorry, verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground, notice, because of you in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. God doesn't buy Adam's excuses. He gives the responsibility where it should lay. So he passes the blame. And Eve follows behind and does the same. Verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. She could have here blamed her pathetically passive husband sitting back watching the whole temptation play out in front of him. Or she could have blamed God, but apparently she does not. She only blames the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. That doesn't make it that much better. That's not what I'm trying to say, but just pointing that out. It's true that the serpent was partially responsible, and we know that because he is judged accordingly in verses 14 and 15, but, but that did not absolve her from responsibility. Even though she was genuinely deceived, She's still responsible for our sin, for her sin. And so the same thing is true about us. Even if we are genuinely deceived, if we sin against the holy God, we are still responsible. This is seen very clearly in the Old Testament law, which sets up all of these unintentional sins. Read through the book of Leviticus and Numbers. You'll find all these uh, sacrifices animals that have to die as a result of unintentional sins. Just because it wasn't intentional doesn't make it less defiant before God. Or at least uh, less wicked. When will the blame shifting stop? From the time of the fall, all throughout human history, people have been passing the blame not my fault. I'm not responsible for my sin. But what's amazing is that Jesus came, and though even though He never deserved any blame, He said, you know what? The blame's going to stop with me. Put all the blame on me. I don't deserve it, but I'll take it. He took your sin upon Him. He covered your shame and your guilt when He died on the cross. And the only way that you can remove the responsibility of your sin from your soldier, from your shoulders is to pass the blame onto Jesus. Okay, not, in a, not in an evil way. You understand what I'm saying. Allow Jesus to suffer judgment in your place. You do this through trusting in the finished work of the cross. What a great Savior we serve. The one who did not deserve any suffering at all suffered for us so that we could have a right relationship with God. What's interesting about this passage and what you'll find throughout the book of Genesis is that God desires to live eternally among His image bearers. That is, you and me, people, humans. God desires to live among humans. Even though sin resulted in estrangement between God and His people, God still desired to dwell among them. That's why he says to the people of Israel, I will be their God and they will be my people. He made a covenant with them. And one day he's going to restore that relationship where we will be able to live in his presence 
just like Adam and Eve did. Unimpeded by our sin. Revelation 21.3 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. God is going to allow us to live in His presence before His face. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, when it talks about them walking or, or hiding themselves from the presence of God, the idea is they're from the face of God. And in Revelation, it talks about us being able to see Him face to face. And one day, we will be able to live directly with Him. There will no longer be any curse, Revelation 22, 3 and 4 says. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. In other words, He has authority over them. He, he owns them. That's the way it will be for all believers of all time. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that God would desire to, to live with humans? That He would desire to, to have His presence among humans? I mean, think of how small we are compared to Him. And yet God desires to do it. And, and because of that, God pursues sinners. What's amazing about the book of Genesis, if you don't learn anything else from this study of this book, you should learn this, that God pursues sinners. God pursues sinners. Did you notice what the first response to the sin of humans was by God? It wasn't thundering judgment. You defied me and you will be destroyed. Instant destruction. No. What was it? It was a question. God was teaching Adam. He didn't want to destroy him. He wanted to enter into a relationship with him so that Adam could see his sin more clearly and he could see his God more clearly. God, instead of passing immediate judgment on him, seeks to teach him. And throughout human history, God is often treated like a jilted husband, but he never gives up on his people. He, pers he pursues them despite their sin. We serve a God that desires to dwell with us. And He pursues us even when we sin. And the consummation of all of history will be when Jesus restores us back to our Father so that we can dwell with Him for all of eternity. We will really live in the Holy of Holies. That's what the... the um, the new heavens and the new earth will be. It's basically a big cube, which is what the Holy of Holies was. The presence of God, the only place, the only person who could enter that was the priest and only once per year. And he had to bring a sacrifice. But now we will be able to live with God in His presence forevermore. I pray that we understand the weight of our sin before our holy God and, and that we live with the recognition that even though God is with us in a veiled way now, that He is pursuing us and that He desires to have a relationship with us through, His, through faith in His Son. Let's pray. Our Father, when we look at a passage like this, we are both humble, humbled and amazed. How can it be that you would save a soul like us 
Why would you want to enter into a relationship with wicked us? And yet you do. You continually pursue us. You continually reach after us even though we often wander. And that's why we are amazed at Your mercies every morning, as Jeremiah says. They are new every day. Great is Your faithfulness. You never give up on us. And so for that, we praise You. We are humbled because of our sin, but we're also amazed because of Your greatness. And we're amazed that You have set out a plan to glorify Yourself by entering into a sovereign, loving relationship with Your image bearers so that You can display Your glory among us. And we pray that we would seek to develop that relationship even now, that we would not wait, that we would not be found sleeping when Jesus comes, that we would be awake spiritually, that we would be fighting, that we would be striving, that we would be struggling. We need Your help. We need the power of Your Spirit. We pray that You would give it to us. That we would apply these truths to our life. Help us to confess our sin where necessary and to see our sin rightly before You so that we can have an unhindered relationship with You as best as we can in this life, this sin-cursed world, in preparation for the time when Jesus Christ will make us holy, presentable before Himself on the day He returns. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.